you have landed on the one and only podcast where you'll learn about the people and places that inspire life-changing travel. This is Dramatic Travels. Yeah, ho out there in podcast land. Aaron Schlein here, and you have landed on episode number 22 of Dramatic Travels Family. Dramatic Travels Family is all about inspiring you to travel the world with your kids and providing you with the resources and support to make your family travel dreams take flight. I created the Dramatic Travels Family Facebook community so that traveling families can support each other on their journeys. We'd love to have you on board. It is totally free, and you can check us out at DramaticTravels.com slash Facebook. Before we get started here, I just wanted to take a moment to share a review from iTunes from a gentleman named Bruno Murphy, and he gave us a five-star review and says that having two kids and also a love for travel makes this podcast perfect. Aaron does a great job of guiding the interviews and getting the best out of his guests. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bruno, for the feedback. Whole lot of fun. I really, really am very proud of this podcast. Really enjoy putting it out for you week after week. And I really appreciate the the kind words and the positive feedback. My friend out there in podcast land, if you take a moment and just leave a quick rating and review in iTunes for Dramatic Travels Family, it would be... uh, it would really make my day. And if you send me a screenshot or just shoot me an email letting me know that you left that rating and review, I'm going to give you a shout out on the podcast next week. All right, my friend, off we go with this week's guest. His name is David Morrow. Please enjoy. Dramatic Travels family, it is my pleasure to introduce you to today's featured guest, David Morrow. David, are you ready to share your dramatic travels? Absolutely. I can't wait, Aaron. Excellent. David Morrow is a father, a writer, a blogger, a certified financial planner, and an actor. David writes for Adventures Northwest Magazine and blogs extensively on topics ranging from mountain climbing to why sardines are safe. David recently released a book titled The Altitude Journals, which is an Amazon number one bestseller. David has appeared in commercials on television, on the internet, in print, and on the radio. He is an improv alumni of the Upfront Theater, a frequent consumer of emergency room services, and builder of dubious watercraft. (laughs) David has two sons, Trevor, who lives in Seattle, and Chase, who lives in Beijing. David resides in Bellingham, Washington, with Lynn, to whom he is permanently engaged. David, that is your long and wonderful bio Please fill in any gaps and tell us just a little bit more about David Morrow. You know, um, I, I noticed that, that your guests on the show, a lot of times they'll talk about their earliest travel memory. And um, and it got me thinking about what mine was. And maybe that's a good place to start in terms of my background. Um, my earliest travel memories when I was seven and uh, our family moved from Los Angeles to Seattle and uh Back in those days, there wasn't any TSA, right? You could pretty much walk onto an airplane with anything. And though the airline didn't know it, uh, I carried a live alligator on board. Uh, It was in a a Tinker Toys uh, box, and it it was my pet Cayman, and uh, he was going with us. And, you know, somewhere over Portland, I, uh, I got 
out of my seat and I was digging around underneath the seat to get my uh, connect the dots activity book. And I noticed the lid was off the Tinker Toys tube and it was empty. And um, so I get back in my seat. I fasten the seatbelt and I just kind of lean over towards my mom and I say, the gator's loose. <laughs> and the look on her face she was like you boys get down there and you find that alligator and i mean right now and so my brother and i we get down on the floor and it hadn't gone far it was it was beneath the seat in front of us and we had a quick rochambeau to see who would grab it by the tail and who would hold the container and we were able to wrestle him back into captivity but i think that's my earliest travel memory so many places we can go from that story as a leaping off point but first of all, David, why an alligator? <laughs> you know, I don't know, because my brother and I, we were little boys, and little boys are fascinated with anything that eats live things. And this alligator ate live goldfish, and that made us gods in our apartment complex. We, uh, we, it was like our, having our own small circus, and uh, for a nickel, people could come and enjoy premium seating on the couch while we fed a live goldfish to the alligator. And that's maybe where my sense of showmanship began. I'm not sure. So seven-year-old David Morrow was an entrepreneur at heart, just getting started. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so where is this alligator today? Well, you know, I'd like to think he's at the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. Um, we, uh, we, we indeed brought the alligator with us. Um, and um, and thinking the alligator was the coolest thing in the world uh, and not being selfish by our very nature, we thought it was a good idea to share the alligator. And so we released him in the swimming pool at the Seven Gables apartment complex where we were on a sunny day. And it turns out not everybody felt the way we did about alligators. Um, and uh, we were evicted. And so... <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we decided it was maybe best to give the alligator a more appropriate home, and we took it to the Woodland Park Zoo and donated it. And uh, well, I, I I'd like to think it's still there. You mean the neighborhood swimmers just didn't appreciate your generosity? No, no, they didn't. There's there's just something about a a, a snapping toothy animal uh, swimming uh, amongst your your friends that. Uh, it's just not welcome. I don't get it. I thought it was a good idea. Well, and your, to your point earlier about TSA Pre, you probably could get an alligator on a plane today, but you'd somehow have to convince them that it was a service animal. And you'd have to be pretty right. creative with what type of a service an alligator could provide. Right. Yeah. It's maybe he alerts me uh, to my peanut allergy, something like that. I, I'm not sure how he would do that, but, but it's worth a try. I mean, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Well, starting also around that time to going back to your childhood. So I spent most of the morning today reading your new book, The Altitude Journals, and you're pretty clear that you grew up uh, not in a family of means. You grew up quite, uh, quite poor. And I'm curious how that played into your, your sense of adventure and then what ultimately led to David, Mor David Morrow, you know, mountain climber. Yeah. Well, in, 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 indeed, we, we grew up in very economically challenged um, uh, circumstances. But uh, that left me with uh, a, a robust imagination 
and uh, and that imagination uh, would take me all kinds of places in my mind, at least. And and I and I think, Karen, that that's maybe where it started. My love of travel, my fascination with travel and faraway places. And uh, and as soon as I was old enough and could scrape together a few bucks to actually go to some of those places, boy, I I did, and I haven't stopped. What was that first place? Some some place you imagined as a kid, and then it manifested itself later in life. Well, Hawaii was really the first. Um, you know, it just it just seemed to me like it it had to be the greatest place in the whole world uh, when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I had graduated high school and had a job and was able to save money that I could actually go there. And and it was such a marvelous experience. And you know, I've I've been there many times since. And and now we think of Hawaii as being well, it's a nice beach place. It's somewhere you go, not exactly exotic or foreign, but to me, it was all those things. And uh, and I. I remember just being stupid excited about going and uh, I still love going there. Well, I just love your point about just the power of imagination, whether as a seven-year-old child or as, as a grown adult using that, just visualizing what you want to do, the places you want to go, the things you want to see. And that really can be the beginning of those experiences eventually manifesting themselves, thinking about them, keeping them in the top of your brain. That's something that I talk to people about all the time, you know, thinking about the things you want to do, learning as much as you can about the things you want to do, keeping them top of mind. And as a seven-year-old with an active imagination and a clear love of wildlife, uh, it sounds like you had that <laughs> going for you, which which clearly was able to, you know, kind of guide you as you, as you grew up, even without the financial means as a child to... To, to travel. So tell me about the adults in your life as when you were growing up and the influence they had on you as far as just that imagination and that passion for travel that eventually came out. My mom uh, would be first uh, on that list. And, and, and my mother was... It, what was it? She's still alive. Is uh, such such a marvelous person, and and really did uh, empower our sense of imagination. Always reminded us that we could dream the kind of dreams any other kid did, even if we didn't have the same um, uh, economic backing they had. That uh, if we put our mind to it, we could go anywhere, do anything, be anything. And so, man, I gotta I gotta give her first spot there. Um, other adults in my life would include things like, uh, you know, my, my, my aunt's, uh, wonderful, restless vagabond souls. And, uh, uh, they would be in Africa one year and in China, the next and trekking in Patagonia, the next. And, um, you know, I would, I would hear about it. And whenever I got together with them, they would share their stories. And, and I think that really took root with me also. Why do you think your mom did what she did, referring to the empowerment that she provided? Was it conscious on her part, or do you think it was just part of her personality? No, I think it was very conscious on her part. I think I think she felt bad that she couldn't provide those experiences to her kids. Um, and it, it uh, my my mom really wanted us to dream. She wanted us to be dreamers. And uh, I remember there was a period where um, in about the second grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Morgan, who I actually thank in the acknowledgments for the book. Uh, and she was the first person who, who ever convinced me that I could write. And in the second grade, this 
uh, this is pretty rudimentary writing going on, but she made a big deal out of it. And my mom made a big deal out of it. And you know, the funny thing is, is, is if you convince somebody early enough that they're good at something, they might believe you and then they might keep believing you and they might become that better thing because of the belief. And I think that's something my mother understood and certainly something Mrs. Morgan understood. That my friend is fascinating and it is so well said because limiting beliefs, whether you're a child or as you're, or whether you're, excuse me, whether you're a child or an adult, limiting beliefs are very real and they're very, can be so debilitating, so crippling when it comes to getting out there and achieving whatever it is you're setting out to achieve, whether it's write a book or climb a mountain or just, you know, take your kids on a road trip. If you don't think you can do it, or if you think you can do it, you're right. The old quote goes, but yeah. it sounds like what, you know, whether she was empowering you to believe in yourself or just preventing you from developing that limiting belief that you can't do it. Either way, it was just so well, such a great thing to do for a child. And it's so, I really love the way you said it because just knowing uh, as adults, the power we have over the children in our lives that we may not realize. Yeah, true. And I have become a regular at boys and girls clubs uh, speaking. And um, they they usually want me to talk about my mountain climbing and that sort of stuff and Mount Everest. And, and that's cool. And I love doing that. Uh, but I always try and share that that message with them, too. You know, um, and, and, and I get that not every kid at a Boys and Girls Club comes from economically difficult circumstances, but a lot of them do. Um, some of them are even homeless uh, and uh, and and they really need the role model. They need the message. They need the belief in the possibility. And so, you know, um, I just tell them how when 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 I was young, there were times I thought I couldn't dream the dreams of kids who came from better situations. But but I know that's wrong. Uh, and uh, and I'll tell them, I say, look, um, you're going to have to work harder than somebody who has things you don't have, but you're not afraid of hard work, are you? And they'll say, no, no, no. And I'll say, right. What you're afraid of is not becoming everything you were born in this life to be. And you can do that. So dream it. and Don't be afraid of the hard work and make it happen. Well, I love that you're giving back because that's huge. And that's really part of the core values that I've established for myself uh, here at Dramatic Travels is the, is the just the idea of giving back, of getting out in the world, exploring, discovering new things. But then that third key step is taking it and giving it back. And in your case, giving back to the Boys and Girls Club, I think that's wonderful. Do you have any, any uh, clear success stories that you've witnessed over there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, you know, there. One of the one of the things I also do is is I go in and I uh, coach the chess team at our local uh, boys and girls club, and um, that can be kind of a rotating roster of of kids that that come to play. But the the ones that tend to stick around are usually sort of the quiet ones that live on the social fringes, um, because it, it, social skills aren't very much required in a game of chess. But over time, uh, I can draw them out, and um, and when you when you see that, when you see them feeling braver about who they are and more comfortable engaging and laughing, and and um, when they run up to you because they see you at the checkout line at the store and they throw their arms around your legs and want to give you a hug, you know those are those are awesome moments, and um, you know those can drive me a long, long way. Absolutely. Going back to limiting beliefs for a second, there's a, a section in your book, and I'm paraphrasing here, 
you talk, you describe a particularly defeating day in your first climb, climbing Denali. And you talk about after such a rough day, that is not the time to be looking up at the peak, that that's not the time to be looking up at the top of the mountain because you, you see just how far away it is. And then you really start to convince yourself. You start to believe that you can't do it. Can you just speak on that for a minute? Yeah. You know, um, so the, the summit of the mountain obviously is what climbers are there for. Uh, so we have that goal and it's a big goal and the bigger the mountain, the bigger the goal. I mean, some of these mountains take weeks and even months to climb. These are big, big commitments you're making and everybody should have big goals. So I don't want this to sound like I'm against having big goals, but once you've made that big goal, it needs to be like a radio set to a very low volume in the other room. All right. So you you can kind of hear it. You, you, You know, it's still around, but it can't be the thing you're constantly listening to and focusing on. Um, what you need to do is you got to take that big goal and you got to break it down and break it down more and more and more and more and more until it's just what you're doing today or maybe even just what you're doing this hour or maybe just five more steps. But you keep breaking it down until the piece that's in front of you is so ridiculously, stupidly small that you say – yeah, I, I can do that. Now, I, I don't know if I can get in the summit, but I can do five more steps. I can do that. And and that is all you allow yourself to think about. That is it. And you're going to worry about what comes after that once you've done that. So, you know, the 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 ability to to focus on manageable pieces has a lot to do with whether you accomplish the big, big pieces. And that's the irony I've observed among high altitude climbers is that the climbers who focus on the summit almost never make it. They just don't. They're crushed beneath the weight of their own dream at some point. The people that make it are the people who treat every day like it's its own climb. And this is important. They find some piece of joy in that day because your ability to climb today's mountain depends a lot on whether you found any joy climbing yesterday's mountain. Crushed beneath the weight of their own dream. I like that. That's paint such a vivid picture. But I love what you just shared right there. And my friends out there in podcast land, if David could break down climbing of Denali and Everest into five more steps and then just five more steps, what dreams can you break down into just five more steps and do that and find joy in those five steps? And you're going to get where you want to go. So thanks for sharing that, David. Uh, On this podcast, one thing I ask most every guest is about a fear, about a scary moment, something that's happened to you in your travels that you overcame because my mission with this podcast is to help people overcome fear, overcome adversity. You share a scary moment and what you learn from it. Yeah. Um, Well, the first one that comes to mind is when uh, we were climbing Denali, uh, which at the time was still called Mount McKinley up in Alaska. Um, Big, cold, moody mountain, 20,000 feet tall in very near the Arctic Circle. It's just a bugger. So we had we had been climbing it for over two weeks, and at this point, it summited, and we we're on our way back down. And you've got to wind your way down the Kahiltna Glacier, which is strafed from side to side with big crevasses. And uh, I fell through a snow bridge and and went in. Um, and uh, I was on a rope team, so the rope 
arrested in my fall. Um, but uh, I'm hanging there from this rope with my backpack on, and I kind of turn my headlamp down, and and the space beneath me is the size of a gymnasium. I mean, I am just a speck hanging on a spider's thread in this thing, and. Um, and it was very easy to imagine that if something went wrong and I came off my harness, I might fall a very long time before I hit anything in that in that blackness. And that was that was scary. Um, now, uh, there's there's something that that I've learned about scary moments um, in and when it comes to managing them uh, to the best of your ability. And that is you you've you've got to learn to set the emotion aside a minute and just tell yourself boy this is going to make for a great story later all right <laughs> So in other words, you're just it's like you've backed the tape up and you're looking at that one interesting spot and you know it all turns out fine. You just keep believing it'll all turn out fine and you keep doing the things you've been trained to do and you execute and don't let your heart rate run away from you. Um, and um, in my case, I was also counting on the strength of my team who are on the other end of that rope and they executed perfectly and, and we worked it all out. Well, you certainly did work it out, <clears throat> excuse me, and it certainly did make for a great story, part of uh, which ended up in the Altitude Journals, your latest book. I say it's your latest book. Do you have any other books? Yeah, that's my first book, man. Yeah, um, I've, I've done a lot of writing, but this is my first book. Well, tell me about it. Tell me about writing a book. Speaking of big, hairy goals that you got to ch chip away at, what was that like for you, writing a book? I approached it the way I approach a mountain climb. Again, just breaking it down. Um, there's a there's a great author out there named Anne Lamont, and I want to give her some credit because she wrote a book for writers about the scariness of writing a book, and it's called Bird by Bird. Anyone out there listening who's interested in, in writing a book, pick it up because it's such an empowering, encouraging, friendly, can-do voice that comes through in her writing. And, and, and the basic message is, is just as the title would, would suggest. Um, it's piece by piece. Uh, the title of her book comes from uh, a point when her younger brother had to write a report on the birds of North America and he waited till like the last day before it was due to do it and he was having an emotional breakdown and uh, and her dad told him you know the way you write this is just bird by bird you write about a bird then you write about the next bird <laughs> um, and writing a book is like that so by the time I finished climbing the seven summits I had a stack of weather beaten journals and uh, they were all in my den stained and, and rumpled and I sat there looking at them I said you know I'll bet there's a story in this and so I, I started going through them and 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 right away the major story threads revealed themselves and then the secondary threads and then the character stories and, and some of these um, travel log type portrait moments and uh, and uh, I, 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 I knew the story I wanted to tell. And so then I just kind of sat down and, and started writing and I would, I would write on Sunday mornings. I would write, uh, any other morning time I got, that's when my writing works the best. Um, I would take three days off each month and go somewhere quiet and I would just write, 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 write. And, uh, and it was so, uh, it was so fun to see it hit the page and like what I was seeing that it, it gave me a lot of steam, but still it took two years. Well, you made a good point there. 
just talking about again about chipping away at goals the way you chipped away at your book and you talked about writing first thing in the morning and I think that is a point that didn't get lost on me because I know for myself that's also the time when my bandwidth is the highest when I do my best and most creative thinking is that would you say that describes you as well Absolutely. Um, you know, before the day has gotten into my head, right? Before, you know, the voices of CNN and and uh, and pop radio and uh, and someone screaming from across the office and uh, all that. Before all that's gotten into my head, and uh, what I'll do is I'll just sit down and I'll read maybe the last three to four pages I wrote to kind of get the scent uh, of what I was doing to get the cadence and the meter right and the feel of what I was working on. And then I just let it hit the page and I do not try and edit while I'm writing. There's time to go back and do that later. But, you know, your internal editor is, is the greatest foe to your creative capabilities. So um, I just let it go. And uh, I'm not afraid of breaking rules of convention or anything. I just want the creative um, high voltage to pass through me. <laughs> creative high voltage with David Morrow. Yeah, I love that. I love just, again, there's that concept of doing your creative work, doing the most the work that inspires you the most when you're at your best before you get on other people's calendars and other people's schedules. You know, you're just taking time for you to, to get that creative work done. I love that. And that, that's a big message I think that folks out there can apply in your own life. You know, you wake up in the morning, sometimes I'm guilty of it too. First thing I do, reach over to my nightstand, pull out the phone, see what's going on in the world. It's like five seconds. Mm -hmm. I haven't even been awake and I'm already on other people's, on other people's calendars. And it's not a great, it's not an ideal way to live. It's definitely not an ideal way to accomplish goals. So thanks for sharing that. We are going to take just a very brief break, and then we're going to be right back with plenty more from David Morrow. Stick around. Flight is a nonprofit organization that empowers students in underserved communities through transformative travel experiences. I believe in flight because I believe that every student deserves a chance to expand his or her global education, regardless of where they come from or how much money they have. I encourage you to visit DramaticTravels.com slash flight. There you'll find links to join the flight community and donate to this fantastic organization. That address again is DramaticTravels.com slash flight. Light. So let's shift to David Morrow, the, the family man. So you have two sons and they're both grown. Tell me about, uh, about raising your boys and what your relationship's like today. Yes. The, uh, the, the story in the book picks up at the point where, uh, my, my marriage of 17 years is over. And, um, my boys at that point in time were just going into middle school. Uh, so I became a single parent at that point. Um, and uh, I would have my boys, my boys for one week and then they'd be with their mom for a week. And uh, uh, during the weeks when I was with my boys, I, I planned nothing else in my life. Uh, I'd started seeing a wonderful woman a few months after my divorce, uh, Lynn, to whom I'm engaged now. <laughs> but I wouldn't see her at all during those weeks when I had my boys. I just wanted to be dad. And, um, and we did some travel together. Uh, they had done some travel. Uh, they had grown up traveling. 
uh, to one degree or another, mm-hmm. and uh, and we continue to have adventures. Um, I booked us on a on a rafting trip to the Grand Canyon that year. They'd been to London and Paris and uh, and uh, all kinds of interesting places. But the favorite experience they ever had was rafting the Grand Canyon right here in the U.S. And um, they still talk about it that way. So. Uh, I I felt it was important to keep our our traditions of adventure alive, and uh, so we did that. Can you describe some of those memories, some of the emotions from that trip? Why it is so memorable even to this day? Yeah, so my boys were were in middle school, and that's that's an age of adolescence where you know they start copying an attitude of I'm too cool for this, I'm too cool for that, uh, but. What I learned with that experience was if if you take a middle schooler completely out of their comfort zone, that disappears. Okay, and uh, and rafting the Grand Canyon, going through Class Five rapids, and and sleeping on the sandbar, and 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 these sort of experience were way, way, way out of their realm of normalcy. And so it was funny how quickly the "I'm too cool" slipped away, and we were able to just connect and share great experiences. We'd hike up side canyons where these waterfalls were coming straight out of the the aquifer. Uh, just pure water and, and we'd swim in the pools beneath them and uh, and had marvelous times making and breaking camp and sitting by the campfire. It was, it was a great experience. Well, it just sounds like you're describing an, an awakening of sorts for your boys, you know, because it's easy to be too cool when you're in your own little fishbowl. And as far as you're concerned, the, you know, your, the universe ends at the end of your block, but then you take mm-hmm. them out and something like you described, you know, the cat five category five rapids and sleeping on the sandbar that will push your threshold. And that, that just is such an eye opening experience. And like you said, that they're still remember it to this day. Those are the stories I love to hear where those true life changing experiences and life changing people. In this case, you are the life changing person because you introduced them to that experience. And I hope that you appreciate that, that you were the, had such an, influence on them. And I hope they appreciate it too, because it's really, really special. Oh, it's one of the real, uh, it's one of the real joys of, of being a parent uh, is being able to introduce uh, your children to these aspects of life that, that you yourself find so valuable and, and then sharing that actual experience with them. You know, shared experience for me is, is really as good as it gets. Um, my, my, my mountain climbs wouldn't be nearly as precious to me as a memory if I'd done them alone, but I had marvelous people people on my teams and and uh, we're all connected through social media or I can call them up and say, hey, you remember when this happened and they're going to remember it. And so it just stays alive that way. And and now I have so many great shared experiences with my boys and their sense of adventure just took off from there. Uh, you know, you learn important things about self-sufficiency when you get out of your comfort zone and things go okay. Um, and, uh, my, my youngest, when he graduated from high school, uh, he sold his car, bought a plane ticket and flew to Europe. Wasn't meeting up with anybody, had no particular plan. He just had his backpack and he was flying into Paris. And, uh, that whole summer, he just kind of crisscrossed all around Europe and he would meet people at the youth hostel and they would say, Hey, we're going to here. Do you want to join us? And so he had joined them and then he would head a separate way. And, and, uh, and, uh, that then translated into studying abroad in Seoul and 
now living and working in Beijing. And what do you think were the impacts or what impact do you think that those trips that you guys took when they were younger, what impact do you think that had on his choice to put himself out there flying over to Europe just after graduating high school all by himself? But if he had, would he have had the courage to do that, you think, without those, those earlier trips? Probably not. You know, you, 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 you learn important pieces of, of the puzzle with each trip. And, 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 and I think one of the important challenges of parenting is, is to not put too much on the plate too quickly, right? Uh, our, our early uh, trips to places like Hawaii and what have you, the, the real message was, how to be a good travel partner, right? A good travel partner has their stuff ready to go at the time we said we were going to hit the road, right? A good travel partner, you know, uh, is is not going to crowd the bathroom with all their junk. We're all sharing that bathroom. You know, a good travel partner will understand when they're hungry. We're all hungry too. There's 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 no point in, in making a fuss about it. We're going to eat as soon as we can. You know, those sorts of messages. When you touch on this in, in the book, again, early early on in the book, talking about your climb of Denali when you were this novice climber amongst these experienced men who understood the value in picking you up, helping you get helping you along as a rookie, because as a team, you're only as good as your weakest link. And the best thing to do as the experienced climber is to help the inexperienced climber along. And it sounds like that had a real motivating and inspirational effect on you. Can you describe that for or talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that was uh, that was a really interesting experience for me because I wasn't used to being the slow guy, um, and uh, I wasn't used to being the person who was uh, learning. and And I would not say I was particularly good at, at accepting help. I like to help others. I'm fine giving it. I'm not very good at accepting help, and I had to realize that and get okay with it. Um, but uh, fortunately, the, the the members of my team on that climb were the sort of um, uh, advocates that I'd like to think I'd been for my boys. And they, they understood, look, you can browbeat a guy, you can make him feel bad about himself, but there's nothing about that that's going to help him get better so that we can get out of camp on time tomorrow. So don't do that. <laughs> Instead, help him. Show him the right way to break down a tent and put it away. Show him the right way to stuff a down sack into a small compression bag. Show him. Teach him. And um, maybe you'll have to teach it a second time or a third time, but somewhere in here, the guy catches on and things start to go better. And, and that's the type of people that uh, I had on my team, and, and I'm really grateful for it. Well, being in that environment, when it's literally life and death you i feel like there's a perspective you gain that you don't necessarily have in day-to-day -day life where your your knee-jerk reaction might be to just sort of browbeat somebody who doesn't understand the fundamentals of what they're doing but in that life and death case where you have that perspective you you feel what i you make what i think is the right decision which is to help people along and you know rise all you know all the boats go up in the rising tide or alternatively all boats go tumbling down the mountain or freeze to death if you don't work together. Mm -hmm. And there's such a cool story. And I love the, the credit that you attribute to the people who helped you along the way. And I think it's just a great theme of this book. And speaking of other people, I understand that there is a member of your team who also has an account of, of or a very similar account of a, of a climb who also turned it into a book. Can you speak on that for a minute? Right. 
that member is a marvelous woman named uh, Carol Master from Salt Lake City, Utah. She's a retired PhD from there. And uh, Carol was on my team uh, with the Karstens Pyramid Climb in Papua New Guinea. And uh, that climb could not have been more different from all the others in that uh, it didn't involve snow and ice travel and glacier travel. It involved a six-day trek through a jungle uh, to get to a 3,000-foot rock face that we would then climb straight up. Uh, so it was a very different um, circumstance, different set of skills. Now, Carol had made a name for herself by becoming the oldest woman to ever summit Mount Everest at age 61. And uh, she had done that four years prior to this climb. And in the time since, she had gone on to summit each of these seven summits except this one. And if she made it, she'd become the oldest woman in history to do the seven summits, uh, which is quite remarkable because at this point, she's almost 66 years old. And um, so we, we, we start off as this loose assembly of, of climbers that are put together by the climbing uh, logistics sponsor, which in this case is uh, Adventure Consultants. No, no, no. This was uh, International Mountain Guides on this climb. And um, and uh, we have a team member from Norway, and, and then there's Carol, and there's a team member from um, – uh, Dominican Republic and another one from Quebec and there's me and we're this we're this eclectic group of people uh, but we we start to we start to gel and um, and uh, we start to really appreciate the reasons each of us is there um, and so as we're as we're moving through this climb and we started off as a team of 12 within three days we were a team of five um, people getting injured getting sick a crisis of will uh, this sort of thing realizing they were in over their heads and turning back um, and Carol was was among the five that persevered but when you're trekking through the jungle it's it's sometimes hip deep mud. It's uh, slick logs. It's slick rocks. You're constantly falling down. And, you know, if you're 35 and you fall down, it kind of sucks, right? But if you're 65, those injuries are cumulative and it's a lot tougher to get past those. And I just watched her get the stuffing beat out of her, just falling and falling and falling. But she never complained. She might lay there for a minute and then get back up, but uh, she she was not going to be broken. And then she got sick. Sickness comes pretty easy in the jungle, but um, her sickness was a reemergence of uh, an IBS condition she had, which made it almost impossible for hold down to hold down food or water. She's very very weak, and so we took her pack and redistributed the weight. This is what you do on a team. And uh, and did what we could for her. We could not evacuate her because in the jungle there's nowhere to land a helicopter. And so she had to press on. And she was so weak that if we would stop for a 10-minute water break, she'd just lay down right in the mud and fall asleep for those 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, But she didn't quit. And, you know, there, there came a point where I realized that that each of us – would uh, didn't much care if we actually made the summit, 
but we damn sure cared that she did. And any one of us would have given up our summit to make sure she did. Um, but there's only so much you can do for a climber. And um, so we did everything we could and we encouraged. And um, sure enough, uh, as, um, as uh, I was approaching the summit, uh, up on that rock face, um, I stopped and sat down and, uh, the guy behind me sat down and he, and he knew what we were doing. Uh, we wanted her to summit first. And so every member of the team just kind of sat down and we formed a little, uh, walk of glory for her to walk between us. And she high-fived everybody and, and, uh, sat up on the summit and it was the, the master stroke of her life's ambition. And, uh, uh, we were all in tears. It was just a powerful moment. You know, David, the, some of the best moments as a podcast host is when I can sit back and listen to a story and forget that I'm hosting a podcast. And that just happened. So uh, it's such a great story. And, I, and you're just, the way you use the words, I'm, I'm there, I'm with you. I'm in Carol's body, almost feeling that, that kind of pain and, and knowing what that must be like. Because very few people, I can imagine, have experienced that kind of a trial where you're literally where you can't just push that eject button or you know throw that lifeline and I you know and, and suddenly get back to safety to warm you know to a warm blanket and that's 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 incredible just to think about and then just how that story ended with uh, you know the amount of teamwork and dedication that you guys showed for Carol getting her to the summit that's just just remarkable so where can we read uh, more about that story I know you you had mentioned that there is a a book about that as well. Absolutely. Carol published a book of her own about that climb. And I hope I get the title right. I think it's called The Greatest of Silver Linings. Um, Carol Master. Uh, so look her up by name or look her up by title, but but somewhere in there, um, your listeners should be able to find her book. And, and, and it's a nice read. It is. It's, it's uh, substantially uh, abbreviated relative to my book. So if, you're, if your listeners are not into a 450-page book like mine, then, then maybe that's a better choice. <laughs> I was telling David in the pre-interview chat that I had I listened to his book on on Audible at one and a half speed. So, listen, talking to him today is kind of surreal because I'm talking to the same guy in the same voice, but he's talking so much slower than that one and a half speed on on Audible. What was that like doing your own doing your own voice recording or doing your own audiobook? It was fun. It was fun. I set aside Friday um, Friday mornings all through the month of uh, August and September of last year, and uh, and I would go into the recording studio. And there was a sound engineer, and I was a little room with the with the headphones and the whole bit. And uh, the first thing I learned is that it's it's really hard to read aloud and not fumble words. Um, we read silently to ourselves, obviously, most of the time. And so it's not something you run into, but uh, it can be hard. And, and the longer you're going in a session, the more you tend to fumble. And every time you do, you got to stop, you got to back up, you got to cue, you got to hit it again. And so it was It was a lot of hours to read that that book that covers all seven summits. Um, the, the, I had a great engineer and, and he would coach me, said, you know, it's, it's okay to, to, to have a bit of feeling in your voice. You know, it, it, as the tension comes into certain moments, but 
but don't uh, don't dramatize it and and be careful about using character voices. This stuff can get kind of tiresome. So just uh, just just read the book. Just read the book and 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 do it in a, in a comfortable, relaxed voice that's that's pleasant to listen to, and people will enjoy it. Well, that's interesting to hear. Just. Yeah, because that's that seems like it would be a very daunting task. And having listened to your audiobook, if you hadn't told me in the in the intro to the book that it was the author himself, you reading the book, I would have assumed it was a professional voice actor. So you did a phenomenal job. And just thinking about you know, thank you. Sure, and just thinking about how you know you're fumbling words, or if that you get late in the day, I'm imagining what a book would sound like if you know, you could you could noticeably tell like, Oh, this is at the end of the session. You can tell he's really pissed off, (laughs) but you can't, you know, you can never, you just, I would, I would, there would be, Aaron, there'd be like places where, you know, the book kind of laps into prose of the sort. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I couldn't get through the section and, uh, and I would just say, I'd love to get my hands on the ponderous son of a bitch that wrote this. (laughs) And the engineer would start laughing. <laughs> and those outtakes in a vault somewhere that we can right. put out on the internet someday. I'm sure they're yeah, quite sure quite they're. humorous. I'm sure they're there somewhere. At any rate, um, j- just to kind of flesh out a bit a bit more about the book, yeah. since we've referred to it a number of times, mm-hmm. um, what, what, what I would what I would say for anyone who who might think they're they're interested in looking into it, first of all, you can go to my website and uh, it's davidjmorrow.com. That's David J and then spelled M A U R O dot com, and I've got links to all my blogs, and so and those are all public domain. So, you know, check out the blogs. And if you like the blogs, you'll probably like the book, but it doesn't cost anything to look at the blogs. And you also see pictures and GoPro video and all kinds of other cool stuff from the climbs. But the the, the basic story behind the book is uh, it starts at the lowest point in my life and ends at the highest point on earth and a whole lot happens in between. Um, the, the, ta- the tangential storyline is, uh, is that on the one hand, uh, the mountain climbs and we climb them and we experience all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a death in there. There's, uh, there's, uh, all, all the stuff that you might expect with high altitude climbing and, and readers learn a lot about that craft. But there's also the figurative mountains that we're climbing, which deal with uh, some pretty thorny issues in my life. Um, And uh, I felt that each mountain called me and it called me for a specific reason and taught me something very specific that was immediately relevant to one of those challenges in my life. Um, some of the challenges involved things like uh, the the fear of intimacy that I brought with me after my divorce. Uh, um, another one had to do with uh, finally grieving the death of my brother. Um, Another one had to do with the fact that my father slipped into dementia and there was no one else to take care of him. And, you know, this is a man who abandoned me as a child. (laughs) And so how do you deal with that? And um, the mountains always had the answers. And uh, I was open to listening. And um, I believe I heard those answers. One other point, a real emotional point that really struck a nerve with me was, again, early on in your book, you described men in your life, cowardly men, as you described them, who were unwilling to reach out to console you as you were going through your divorce. And I 
it resonated with me because I feel like there's been times in my life where I've been that quote unquote cowardly guy who wants to check in on a friend who's hurting, but for whatever reason, like you said, don't want to, it's kind of embarrassing to say it out loud, but you know, what do, what do I do if this man breaks down crying? I, I don't feel like I'm equipped to deal with that. What do you, what do you say to people like me and those other cowardly men out there? Yeah. Well, so, so first of all, we should note, I included myself among you the cowardly did. men. You most too. Certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, what, 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 what I would say is, is, is first of all, um, understand that you don't have to have the answers, um, that when, when, when somebody is, 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 is grieving or just going through a lousy stinking time, all they really want is for you to listen. Okay. They just want, so they want to speak what's in their heart and have somebody bear witness. Um, you don't have to have the answers. You don't even have to agree with their point of view. Okay. It's, it's all right. All you got to do is listen and say, I understand. You don't have to say, I agree. Just, I understand. That's all anybody really wants. And, and if they cry, guess what? You know, tears don't stain. You're going to be fine. Just wait it out and, uh, and, you know, off from a pat on the shoulder. Not a big deal. But listen and say, I understand. That's it. David, I'm not sure what I'm going to name this episode, but tears don't stain with David Morrow is in the running. I like that. <laughs> Well, good. <laughs> well, Dramatic Travels family, the book is The Altitude Journals. My guest today has been David Morrow. You can find that book at Amazon and print versions, ebook versions, uh, also on Barnes & Noble, other retailers. The audiobook, which we mentioned David also narrates very, very well, is available on iTunes, Audible, Amazon. And you can learn everything you want to know about David Morrow, including the Altitude Journals at davidjmorrow.com. The links uh, from this episode to the book and to all David's contact information, including his socials, is going to be at dramatictravels.com slash 22. David Morrow, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your dramatic travels. You're very welcome. And, and thank you for having me on, Aaron. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Love the show. Love what the show's about. And it's just been a real privilege uh, spending some time with you and your listeners. Yes, indeed, my friend. I hope you enjoyed my chat today with David Morrow. There's always more to explore from this and every episode over at DramaticTravels.com. You can go straight to the show notes from this episode at DramaticTravels.com slash 22. We'll see you next week, my friend. And remember, your emotional memories are your most powerful memories. So put some emotion in your motion. Bye.